want to make the wrong choice. Um, so I fill my time researching reviews, watching unboxings. I pour over the minute details and technical, technical specifications. And so often, I'll delay my purchase for weeks because I don't want to pull the trigger and click the checkout button. I just feel like I don't want to commit and I end up just sitting on the fence. Uh, and the thing is, we, we can so often sit on the fence uh, for so many reasons, can't we? Next blank slide, please, just so it doesn't distract us. <laughs> um, we're confronted with so many decisions in our life that it can be fatiguing, right? And so often, it might just be easier to give up and not choose a side. Uh, but in our passage today, we meet some people who seem to be sitting on the fence when it comes to who Jesus is. They can't seem to make up their minds. They just want to sit on the fence, wait it out, and see. And we're going to hear the warning that Jesus gives them uh, that actually the problem of indecision might actually not be a problem of indecision at all. Uh, now, just last week, we saw Jesus' warning that the kingdom has been subjected to oppression. Uh, and soon, it seems that right now, we're in the thick of it already. Uh, because today we see the Pharisees on Jesus' heels trying hard to find fault with Jesus. Uh, here is a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And then Jesus casts the demon out. The demon's power is neutralized. The man is restored and the crowds are astonished. But not so the Pharisees. Their response? It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Isn't it just interesting here that uh, Jesus' work is so clear that the Pharisees don't go the, the route of calling Jesus a fraud or a con artist, tricking people with uh, magic tricks or sleight of hand. No, Jesus' miracles are so public, so indisputable, that the only way that they can say anything bad about Jesus is to suggest that his source of power is demonic. And we see this even in the historical accounts of Jesus in the early church, both in the Jewish Talmud uh, and also in the uh, Roman accounts. Jesus is not called a con man, but he's called a sorcerer because his, his power was just so plain to see by everyone. But getting back to the passage, just as the Pharisees are accusing of Jesus being in league with Satan, Jesus stops them in their tracks because there's some big problems with their logic. And the first is this, if Jesus is from Satan, then actively opposing Satan makes no sense whatsoever, right? If Jesus is working for Satan, why would he undermine the very work Satan is trying to do, right? He, Satan is trying to oppress God's people, to, to keep them terrified, to get them to lose faith in God. And so Jesus doing the opposite, that, it doesn't make any sense. But there's a second problem. If Jesus is called a minion of Satan because he casts out demons, then what about you guys? Because we know from historical writings that the casting out of demons was uh, practiced by the religious leaders of different sects. Um, and from Jesus' words, we can assume that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were also able to somehow cast out demons. We don't know um, how, what that might look like. Uh, but the, the point is, you can't be selective with your accusations here, right? Your own actions either prove that you are also with Satan or that Jesus isn't right? Your own people will judge you. And so if this is not the case, there is only one other conclusion to make. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Now, the if here that Jesus uses is clearly rhetorical, right? Because it is clear already that the Spirit of God has descended upon Jesus at his baptism. It is clear from his miracle after miracle, fulfilling Scripture over and over again. It is clear from his teaching, elevating, fulfilling the law of Moses, not abolishing it. And so with Satan's grip on the world failing, that his own demons are are being driven out, that should be the final piece of the puzzle falling into place. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus is this king who has come to bring this kingdom into our world. And so Jesus continues. What did you expect would happen when God finally brings his kingdom into being? Right? When God finally undoes the work of Satan. I mean, if you walk along and you see this picture, you probably think, all right, something's going on, but no one is getting in or out of there, right? But if you walk into a building and you see this, you probably think, okay, something's going down, and it's not good for the owner of that building, right? And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what's happening. The old order, Satan's power and kingdom, it's being tied up. It's being restrained. It's marking the end of the reign of oppression and deception. A regime change of a cosmic order is happening right before your eyes. You better take a look around and see what's happening. Because the thing is, if you like things the way they are, you're comfortable, you don't don't mind the suffering in the world because the suffering of the world hasn't really affected you, right? You're so sheltered in your comfort. Uh, Maybe you think, nothing bad has happened to me because I'm such a good person, right? I've earned uh, God's blessing. The Pharisees probably thought this way, right? They had standing, you know, they were well-respected, they're probably better uh, well-off than the average Jewish person. Well, if that's the case, then you wouldn't want a regime change, would you? You're comfortable. But on the other hand, if you're someone who's shocked, you're horrified at the evils happening all around you, if you're someone who mourns and grieves about the injustice happening all around the world, even in your own life, if you are someone feeling that life shouldn't be this hard, that things ought to be better, then wouldn't you love a regime change, a change of government in your life? Well, with Jesus' powerful displays, disabling Satan's works in the world, we know change is coming. God's kingdom is upon us. And if this is true, then the stakes of how you will respond to all these signs is extremely high. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, Christians across the centuries have debated what it means to commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? And some might worry, oh, have I accidentally done this in the past and thus disqualified myself from forgiveness full stop? Uh, Maybe in the past I might have made some strong and offensive comments against Jesus, denouncing Jesus and his followers. They might have even cursed Jesus or even claimed that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. But is this what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because let's, again, look at the context. What is happening in this passage? Take a look at the attitude that Jesus is addressing here. The Pharisees have just witnessed a miracle. A demon has been cast out by Jesus' power, and there is no doubt that God is at work here, that the Spirit of God is at work. 
But the response of these Pharisees is that they label this clear work of God as Satan, right? Like we saw last week, this attitude is simply unbelief. Their minds are made up. No amount of evidence will change their mind. And so, of course, if your hard-heartedness means that you will reject God's king no matter what, if the undisputed evidence of God's kingdom is right before you and you still refuse to enter God's kingdom, then what hope is there for you to be forgiven? How can you possibly be forgiven if you don't accept God's way? Jesus isn't talking about some offhand comment you made years ago, even if you meant it, right? Because you were speaking out of ignorance, you were, even if it was sinful, even if it did hurt God and hurt others. Jesus is talking about a heart that is so hard that it would never repent. But the Pharisees, they don't want any of this. And in verse 38, they insist again, Oh, teacher, we want a sign from you. We want more evidence. But this is Jesus' response. Verses 39 to 40. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, just a nod to a life group, you know, you should already be a little bit aware of Jonah by this stage, and if you're not in a life group, well, you don't know what you're missing out. But anyway, what Jesus is saying is, I will not give you a sign, basically. All you get is this obscure reference to the prophet Jonah. Now, you can imagine that's a pretty confusing thing to hear, right? I mean, for us, in hindsight, okay, three nights, three days in the belly of a fish. Oh, sure, that's referring to his death, and then three days later, his resurrection. But how is that any of a clue for those people back then? They, they don't know what's going to happen. And so with this obscure reference, Jesus is saying, no sign for you. Just this obscure reference to my death and resurrection, that's all you're going to get. Why is that? Well, as I said before, the evidence is already clear about who Jesus is. If you had paid attention to Jesus' ministry, you should already know who he is. And so Jesus simply gives them two illustrations. Again, look at the story of Jonah. You Pharisees know so well, and we should know after Bible study. The book describes a reluctant prophet, Jonah, and instead of preaching to, jo uh, to Nineveh, Right? Nineveh were God's enemies, those who attacked and oppressed God's people severely. Instead of preaching to them, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. He doesn't want to have a chance of give, giving them a chance of repenting. But when God forces Jonah's hand, Jonah reluctantly goes and preaches the grand city of Nineveh, saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. Right? It's this pathetic attempt at preaching, just one line. No command to repent, no instructions on how to obey God and stop this judgment, but look at how ridiculous this response is. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This response is so comical, right? Just one stupid line of a sermon that he didn't even bother trying, and the entire city, from the king to even the cows, put on sackcloth. They all go into mourning, they all fasted before God, and of course the whole city was spared. Again, Jesus brings up another example. 
Jesus points them to the book of Kings. The queen of Sheba hears about the fame of Solomon and the king's relationship with God. And so she comes to test Solomon and with hard questions, and she listens to the wisdom of Solomon. And as she does, as she sees all the evidence of God's provision and grace over his people, she is overwhelmed. And she praises God. She sends massive amounts of gold and gifts to Solomon. Now, what is the point of bringing up these two illustrations? The city of Nineveh, the queen of the south, they heard God's message. They witnessed God's grace and wisdom. And they responded rightly. They accepted the message with with repentance on one hand and praise and offering on the other. But now look at Jesus. Someone who far exceeds that pathetic teaching of Jonah is before you. Someone who far exceeds the wisdom of Solomon is right here. Someone whose deeds and miracles show God's power and compassion far more than anyone else in the Old Testament. Any far more than the temple sacrifice ever gave them hope for. You've all witnessed with your own eyes. How can you reject Jesus, who is clearly so much greater than anything that we've seen in in the history of God and his people? But secondly, look at who these people in the story are. Those who recognize God's works and his message, well, in the second example, it's a Gentile, an unclean Jew, again. We've seen that come up a few times in this book. And in the first example, it's even worse. It's God's enemies, These worshippers of false gods who plundered the cities of God's people, that's who they were. And yet, when they saw the works of God, when they heard the message of God's good news, they made the right call, as inferior as those works and messages were. And again, what's the point of all this? Well, it shows that the Pharisees are not simply doubting Jesus. It's not like they had no evidence to go off. I mean, it makes sense to want signs, right? To want proof of something or someone making claims as big as what Jesus has been making, but they had plenty of that already, and they still refused to believe. Come on, Jesus, give us another miracle and another one. And I think all that we've covered so far drives home the point in this section, and that point is actually right in the middle of this passage that I skipped, verse 30. Whoever is not against me, is not with me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, there can only be two responses to Jesus. You can either be with Jesus or against Jesus. There is no middle ground. Now, who's familiar with this little diagram up here? Have you seen this before? Yeah, getting some nods of their heads. Uh, this is, of course, the two ways to live gospel presentation, right? It's, it summarizes the, the gospel message into six short headings and pictures. Uh, so God created the world, uh, humans rejected um, God's rule to live our own way, and because of that, uh, punishment is death. But the good news is that uh, God sends Jesus, who not only dies to take our punishment, but also rises as a ruler of our world. But what is so good about this presentation, as the name suggests, is that it is clear that there are only two ways to live, right? You can either live with Jesus as king, trusting in Jesus, obeying Jesus, or you can continue to live with yourself as king, rejecting Jesus and living your own way. Now, I don't know if you've used this tool to share the gospel uh, with others before, uh, friends or family, uh, but sooner or later, you'll come across someone who doesn't like these two options. I don't know if you've met someone like that before. 
they might say, I'm not rejecting Jesus, because I kind of like Jesus. He's a nice guy. I kind of like some of what he says. I want to be a good person, to, to love and not hate. I want to live with compassion and to give to the poor and so on. But I'm really not ready to fully commit to Jesus. I want to live a third way, down the middle, right? With, I, I, I want to be good without Jesus. And so I'll listen to some of what Jesus says, just not the bits that I don't like, right? Worshipping God with all my life or that I need Jesus to be my King and Saviour. But here's the problem with that position. Because if we are faced with the King of creation, how can you be a fence-sitter? Just imagine you're in an army, right? Um, and a general came along and ordered you to go and attack the enemy. You can't say, well, look, I'm not going to oppose you. I'm not going to run away, but I'm not going to attack either. I'll, I'll just sit still, right? Is that okay? I'll, I'll just sit in the fence. That's still insubordination, right? And so how much more when you're, you're claiming to sit on the fence when it comes to the king of creation, the king of God's kingdom is inviting you into his kingdom and you're refusing to make a decision. And so while some Pharisees are, are outright labeling Jesus as working on behalf of Satan, others seem to be fence-sitting. They've seen the signs, the evidence, but they still say, no, I want more signs. How can we really be sure, Jesus? Come on, just give us another miracle. Whilst on the outside it looks reasonable and wise, wanting to see more evidence, but on the inside they just don't want to commit. And you could probably say that, in fact, no amount of miracles would ever sway them to see the reality of who Jesus is. So in a way, sitting on the fence is choosing not to decide. That is a decision in itself. So just like what I said last week, if you are someone who hasn't made the decision to follow Jesus yet, you may genuinely need to find out more. You have real questions about the Bible, about Jesus. You might need more time to process what you've been learning and hearing. And if that is so, keep learning, keep finding answers. But maybe you might have all the evidence that you need to make a decision, but you've simply just chosen to delay that decision. Right? Sitting on the fence might be a choice that just feels quite comfortable right now. And if so, if this is you, can I please ask you to hear this warning? Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. These are confronting words, aren't they? But there really are only two options. Now, if this makes you really feel uncomfortable, uh, please come chat to uh, Pastor Pete, come to chat to myself, um, after the service, we'd love to chat to you about this, if that's the case. But Jesus also gives us one final warning of those of us who might look all good on the outside, but on the inside, we're actually still fence-sitting. Verse 43, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This, or that, is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, what is this all about? What's that got to do with anything? Well, Jesus is painting a picture of what rejecting him and sitting on the fence might look like. Like someone trying to clean the house of all the filth and muck and all the stuff wrong with your life 
but the core problem has not been fixed. Because there is no, no point getting rid of all your demons, whatever they might be, right? Even today, we might think of something like, oh, I've got a long list of self-help books, videos out there, that I, a playlist of YouTube videos to fix my life, weight loss, eat healthy, exercise, declutter your life, minimalism, zero waste, exercise to, to, to improve your mental health, physical health, social health, financial health. Now, if you're pushing to improve in these areas, then great, that's good. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to lose weight myself. I'm trying to do a couple of these things. Great. But the point of this section is that if you do these things without first dealing with your biggest problem, if you don't first have the strong man dwelling without, within us to guard us, to guide us, to take possession of us in a, in a good way, if Jesus isn't the one that fills our life with meaning and purpose and direction, then we've just cleaned our house and left it empty for other problems to come in. We need to be fully committed to Jesus. Now, during my early days going to a Christian church during uni, you might not have noticed anything wrong with me, um, with my Christian life in particular. By all measures, I was a keen Christian. I went to church every week, I attended Bible study, and my behaviors also started to change. I, I used to swear nonstop. Uh, some people are quite surprised when I say that, but yeah, I, I was swearing my, my mouth off. Uh, but then I cleaned up my language, right? Uh, even privately, my behaviors changed. I stopped looking at pornography, but there was still something really wrong with my life. All my behaviors, cleaning up my life, actually, Jesus had nothing to do with it. Jesus wasn't my king. I stopped swearing because I had a new group of friends now, Christian friends, and they never swore, and I wanted to fit in. I stopped looking at pornography because I heard a really powerful sermon making me realize how disgusting it was. I felt ashamed. I felt disgusted at myself. But it was all me-focused. It was by my own effort that I could forge on ahead and create a better me. That was what I was thinking. For so long, I was just a fence-sitter, happily appearing like a follower of Jesus. I've got one foot in this Christian stuff, but still another foot firmly disregarding who Jesus was and what he had done for me. And it wasn't until months later when it finally hit me that I was missing something when I realized I need God's grace and when I needed Christ to save me for Christ to be dwelling within me. Friends, even if we are all looking like we're doing all right, when our behaviors are matching up quite nicely to how we think Christians are supposed to look like, are we still practically fence-sitters? Now, can I remind us all that to follow the king means that we have to go all in. You're either for Jesus or you're not. And so can you put your hope in Jesus, the strong man? Don't just look at Jesus from a distance. Invite him into your life every day. Devote your life to serving him. There is no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. And so let us commit ourselves to the king of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we want to thank you that in the Gospels we see so much evidence of who Jesus is. And even though we weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus' power, there is no disputing when we look at Scripture, as we saw last week, 
when we see what Jesus has done, when we see the amazement of all the crowds, there is no disputing who Jesus is. And so, Father, we pray that we will be people who are fully committed to Jesus. And if anyone is still on the fence, not wanting to really dig deep and make a decision, Father, may your Spirit really enable them to see clearly all that they have seen and heard so far. And we pray that we as a church would encourage them to take that step to follow Jesus. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.